The Pesach Seder is arguably the most important night of the Jewish calendar. The first night of Pesach for Jews in the diaspora, the second night of Pesach as well. This is the night that we dedicate the night to reliving, remembering that original Pesach, the original night of the Exodus, the night that we were redeemed from Egypt, the night that marks the death of the firstborn. On this night, the Jewish people became a nation. And ever since then, this has been a night that is associated with lots of mitzvos and customs and practices and traditions. And of course, we have an entire book, the Haggadah, which is dedicated to accompanying us throughout this night and making sure that we maximize our experience. This book of Haggadah, we don't exactly know who wrote it. It's one of either the later Tanaim, the later authors of the Mishnah, or the early Amoraim, the early authors of the Talmud. So think of it somewhere between the 2nd and the 4th century of the Common Era. Some say perhaps it was written by Rabbi Judah the Prince, perhaps by someone else. But this is a essentially 2,000-year-old work, a work that I once heard has more commentaries on it, more editions of it than any other Jewish book. And it is chock full of insights to how to maximize this night. And I think what I wanted to do today, obviously it's impossible to cover everything, all the themes and all the concepts and all the highlights of this night and of the Haggadah, but I think in the time allotted to share a little bit of a perspective, some insights, some ideas, some concepts to make this night as powerful, as special, and as interesting as possible. So let's begin with the night itself. What is this night known for? What is the special power of this night? What is unique about the first night of Passover? So, of course, this is the night that marks the Exodus. It marks the redemption. And on a deeper level, our sages tell us that prior to the Exodus, the Jewish people were at their lowest nadir. In Kabbalistic terms, we're told that there are 50 gates of purity, of holiness, and there are 50 gates of impurity, of the opposite. And prior to the Exodus, our sages tell us that the Jewish people were at the 49th gate of impurity, meaning that the doorstep of gate number 50. What happens when someone or a nation goes through that last gate of impurity? So, tabulistically, we're told that is the point of no return. Once you pass that transition, you go a little bit further, the nation becomes irreparable, the nation becomes irredeemable, and the nation is condemned to being destroyed. And therefore, this was a very perilous time because the Jewish people were hanging on a thread if they pass by this point of the sand from point number 49 to gate number 50, then they are hopeless. Now, what happened on this night? On this night, our status tell us, the nation was catapulted from the 49th level of impurity 
to the 49th level of holiness. A complete turnaround, a complete transformation from being at the absolute pit of nearly being destroyed to being at the apex of the human experience. In terms of Jewish philosophy, there is this revelation of God that appears on this night that wipes away any impurity and uplifts all the people that are privy to this revelation to the highest level where there's no room for doubt, there's no room for any sort of heresy, you're at the highest level of holiness. And by the way, what happens subsequently? So we have this revelation, and then we have 49 plus 150 days till the Jewish people experience prophecy again, experience revelation again at Mount Sinai. What our sages tell us is that the Exodus night and the revelation at Sinai are the same revelation. The difference being is that on Pesach, on the Exodus, the Jewish nation gets there artificially. They are temporarily uplifted to this very high level. And then over the course of the next 49 days, each day, they earn one of those levels. And then once again, after they've gone through the exercise of both being there temporarily, being uplifted there temporarily by God at the Exodus night, and then earning it over the course of the next 49 plus one days, they're ready for the 50th day, which is when they receive the Torah at Sinai. They relive that revelation. This time it's it's earned, and this time they get the Torah. So Passover, so Pesach, certainly this night of Pesach, marks this dramatic, unprecedented transformation from the lowest level to the highest level. What's the name of this festival? So it's called Pesach. It's called Passover. Why? What's the relevance of that? So we read in the Haggadah, why is it called Passover? Because God passed over the homes of the Jewish people when he unleashed his fury, when he killed all the firstborn of Egypt, he passed over, he skipped over, he jumped over the homes of the Jewish people and he attacked the Egyptians. God passed us over. That's the name of the holiday. And the question is, isn't that really a sideshow to the story? Maybe it should be the festival of the Exodus. Maybe it should be the festival of freedom. And again, there are a lot of names given to this festival, but the flagship name is Pesach, is Passover, which talks about jumping. What's the idea behind that? So Rashi, in his commentary to Exodus 12, 11, gives us a little bit more clarity in this insight. Very powerful idea. So the verse is describing what the Jewish people need to do for the Exodus. They have to eat the Paschal offering, the Pesach Carbon, the Pesach sacrifice, and that's to be ready to go. They gotta have their shoes on, they gotta have their belts on, they gotta be ready to go. And you eat it quickly. Pesach Hulashem. It is a Pesach, a Passover offering for the Lord, for the Almighty. Says Rashi, what does this mean? The sacrifice is called Pesach, Passover. Why? To reference the jumping, the leaping, the passing over from house to house. Because the Almighty goes through a neighborhood. It's a mixed neighborhood. Some Jews, some Egyptians. And the Almighty is jumping over the houses 
of the Jewish people, and they are unaffected by this night, and all the Egyptians are killed. And then concludes Rashi. And you too, when you do your work for heaven, do it in a way of jumping, of leaping, of passing over as a remembrance for the Exodus. Our status tells us a very deep insight over here. The name of the holiday, the name of the festival is instructive. On this night, God jumped from house to house. On Pesach, we too jump. This is the night that marks the most unprecedented transformational turnaround in human history. From minus 49 to plus 49. That's the original Pesach. On the original Pesach, there were no small steps for man. It was all about this giant leap for the Jewish nation. And that's the power of the day. On this day, we jump, we catapult, we eclipse, we leave the small, gradual, progressive, cumulative growth for every other night of the year. Tonight, Pesach, we jump, we pass over. All the levels that we need to get to where we want to get, we can skip them. Tonight is the cheat code of skipping all the levels and achieving the highest transformation possible on this night more than any other night. And our sages also point out, and this is a theme that we see throughout the Jewish calendar, we don't view the calendar as being linear, as if every day is a brand new day that's not associated with the times of the past. Ramchal, Ramosh Chemutzato, of course, one of the great titans of Jewish philosophy, he tells us that it's like a circle, meaning that the calendar, the year, the annual calendar are these junctures in time, these stations in time that we revisit each year. And thus, the same exact revelation that was present at the original night of the Exodus is present every year when we arrive at that same station. The same revelation, the same power, the same ability to pass over, to transform yourself in one instant, to eclipse, to jump, to leap, that appears this night every year. In fact, and we mentioned this in the past, Abraham was eating matzah before it was tool. Abraham was eating matzah before the Exodus. And what that reveals to us is that he understood, because he's a prophet, because he's Abraham, he understood that that juncture in time is associated with freedom, and he also understood that matzah is associated with, with freedom, and therefore it made sense to him, before there was the Jewish people, before he even had any children, certainly before the Jewish people were enslaved in Egypt, and of course before the Exodus, it made sense for him to eat the matzah on this particular night. That is associated with his juncture in time. And therefore, this festival is called Pesach. It's called Passover to remind us this is where the day comes from. We passed over all the small steps, all the monotonous, little bit, keep your head down, plug away. Eventually, you'll get there. That is discarded. We dispense with that attitude on Passover. On Passover, we leap. And our sages add that it's also a day that we could alter the trajectory of our life. You may have been born with unlucky omens. 
you were dealt poor cards in every area of your life. It could be financial. It could be relationship. It could be children. It could be your health and vitality. Tonight's the night then you, that you can alter that. And by the way, it's been pointed out, this is not only the night for the righteous, for the tzaddikim, for the people that are already holy. Think about it. The Jewish people at this night were at their nadir. They were at their lowest point. And those people were transformed on this night. Certainly, we can have a similar metamorphosis tonight. God himself describes the Exodus as the Jewish people being taken out of Egypt on the wings of eagles. And someone asked the question, wait a minute, of all the big birds that you could choose, why choose a non-kosher bird? And here's the answer. Yes, the eagle's a non-kosher bird. But you know what happens tonight? Even the people that were impure, that were non-kosher, the people that were not righteous, tonight's their night. Tonight they can be transformed. Tonight God can use them, so to speak, to have this grand leap. One of the great medieval commentators and halaches was, his name was, was, was the Maharil. And like many Jews throughout history, he was a money lender. And he would lend money to everyone, to the greater population. And of course, if you lend money, you want to have some collateral. And many of his borrowers, they were ostensibly wealthy non-Jews, they would give him gold and silver vessels as collateral for his loans. And he writes in his commentary, in his halacha, that on Pesach, our table has to be adorned like a king's banquet. And he would take out these vessels, gold, silver, precious vessels, owned by non-Jews, but in his hands as collateral, and we put them out on his table, or I think it would have a separate table, but it would be there to adorn the Pesach experience. And they asked the question, even though there's no technical problem, to use non-kosher vessels if you're just looking at them, you're not even eating them. But we know that Pesach is this time where we're so fastidious, we're so meticulous about not having anything that's not kosher, it's kosher for Pesach. And somehow, this great rabbi is bringing out the gold and the silver vessels to be there on display on Pesach. So the Chassam Sofer, of course, one of the great Jews of the 18th and early 19th century, he said this point, the power of this night is that the holiness is going to permeate all and it's going to pulverize any impurity. Jewish people, lowest level of impurity. What happens tonight? Transform to holiness. You have non-Jewish owned gold vessels? Tonight, you can bring them out because tonight, that's the power of the night. It's going to expunge, so to speak, any of the impurity that is present. And in the Kabbalah, we learn just more statements to this idea that this is a night which is really a night that's bright as day. It was night, it was dark, but it was as bright as midday. Just as by day there's brightness, there is clairvoyance, there's clarity, there's lucidity, 
This is the night of that similar lucidity. And our Satanists tell us that this is a night, even before the Exodus, that's associated with all these transformations. For example, we know the story in Genesis. Isaac is getting old, and he wants to bless his son Esau before he passes. So he tells him, I'm going to wait to the most auspicious night for blessing and prayer, and that's the night you're going to go catch me some game, and I'm going to give you that blessing. And what night is that? That is the night of Passover, the first night of Passover. He tells Asaph, everyone's saying praise to God. This is the night of the revelation. Again, it hasn't happened yet. All the storehouses of dew, which is considered blessing in, in Jewish philosophy, they're all open on this night. This is the night that's most suspicious for a blessing. Go catch some game. I'm going to give you a blessing. And of course, Rebecca is listening again. And she says a very similar message to her son, to the other son, to the twin, to Jacob. Again, she tells him, this is the night where all the storehouses of blessing are open. The lofty ones are saying prayer, are singing praise to God. On this night, in the future, your descendants will be redeemed from servitude. This is the night of singing praise of God. You don't make some delicacies, and we're going to get the blessing tonight. Abraham, of course, participates in a war. He defeats the consortium of the four mighty kings. What night did that happen? That happened on Passover. When Jacob is fleeing from his tyrannical father-in-law, who, by the way, makes a very important appearance in the Haggadah, and God appears to Jacob in a dream. That again is the night of Pesach. Oh, and by the way, in the Purim story, Haman has a plan to kill the Jewish people in Adar, of course. Mordechai institutes a fast the preceding Nisan on Pesach. So even though there's 11 months till the decree is supposed to be enacted, on Pesach, he decrees, Mordechai decrees the fast because that's the way to get people's attention. This is the night of grand transformation. If you're going to make a move, a big move, now is the time. So we see a lot of holiness and power is associated with this night. And again, it's important to remember that this is not just some sort of communal and national idea One of the central themes of the night is that it is very personal. In fact, the Mishnah tells us in the book of Pesachim, which of course is the book that deals with Pesach, and this is also featured in the Haggadah, in every generation, every generation, a person has to view themselves as if they left Egypt. And this is based upon a verse in Exodus. The verse is describing the conversation between a parent, a father, and a son, tell your son on that day, this is the reason why God took me out of Egypt. This is not something that happens only to our antecedents. In every generation, and every time in history, there is the ability for each one of us as individuals to feel like we left Egypt. There's a very famous comment in the Rambam. Not only do we have to view ourselves that we left as if we left 
from Egypt, as if we were saved from Egypt, we have to make ourselves appear as if we left Egypt. And that's why every action of this night has to exude freedom and royalty. One of the laws is, of course, that you lean. And you lean, I say just tell us, because that is the ways of the monarchy. We have to decorate the room as much as possible like royalty. The table has to be as royal as possible because it's not only our ancestors that left Egypt. We, too, must leave Egypt. But you may ask, wait a minute, I've actually never been to Egypt. Some of us haven't even been to the Middle East. What do we know about Egypt? What do we know about servitude? What do we know about exile that that mandates that we, too, have to have our own exodus from Egypt? I just point out. The Hebrew word for Egypt is Mitzrayim. That word has another meaning. It means boundaries. It means limitations. Whatever is limiting you from becoming great, that is your personal Egypt. That is your personal Mitzrayim. And tonight is your opportunity for an exodus. And it's not only you who's going to be there. Of course, this year, it's going to be a very unusual year because a lot of people are going to have smaller seders than they were originally anticipating. A lot of people are going to have fewer guests than they were anticipating. But the Kabbalah in the Zohar says something powerful, says something fascinating. It says that the Almighty and His heavenly retinue they participate in the Seder. They crowd around in the words of the Zohar and they participate, they listen in to hear what the Jewish people are saying on this night. So think about it. You may be alone, you may have fewer guests, you may not have your parents, you may not have your children, but you know who's still there with you? The Almighty of the Angels. That's what we're told in, in the Kabbalah. And they're here to participate on this night Let's see what you can do. Let's see what you you could transform yourself. Let's see how much of your own personal Egypt you could leave behind. You could have your own exodus. Let's see, can you go from your level of impurity to your level of potential holiness? And the whole night and the whole Seder and all the mitzvahs are all designed to facilitate that. And in fact, there are many mitzvahs of this night. And it's a night that's bedecked with mitzvahs. There are mitzvahs that are Torahitic mitzvahs. There are rabbinic mitzvahs. So we have Torah mitzvahs like eating matzah. It's the one mitzvah that we still have today from the Torah to eat something. There's a mitzvah to tell over the story of the Exodus. It is a Torah mitzvah, one of the sister mitzvahs, to tell the story of the Exodus on this night. There is another related mitzvah to tell the Exodus every other night, but there is a unique mitzvah to tell over the mitzvah of the Exodus tonight. There are rabbinic mitzvahs like to eat the maror, to drink the four cups of wine, to lean at various junctures in the Seder, to eat the karpas, which for most people it's uh, some sort of vegetable. It's a, it's a, it's a, we, we use potatoes. Other people have different customs. To do the Korech Hillel burger, the Hillel sandwich. And of course, to eat the afikoma. And everything's integrated into the Haggadah to enable, to facilitate everyone to have the most powerful experience over this Pesach. 
So that's kind of the big picture of what this night is. I want to get down to more of the the granular details. And let's look at the Haggadah and see how it guides us to maximize this night. So first of all, it's interesting. A lot of the structure of the Haggadah is in a question and answer format. And there's a lot of reasons why that would be so. My grandfather, blessed memory, he quoted the Talmud. The Talmud says, talking about King David, when King David is being presented before Saul, it says that he knows how to do music. He's a musician. What does that mean? Says the Talmud, it means he knows how to ask good questions. Music, questions. So my grandfather explained that just as music is evocative, questions are evocative. When you ask questions, it opens up portals that weren't there beforehand, just like music. Similarly, on this night, to get everyone's attention, to open up the new portals, to expand the vistas of Passover, it's done in a question and answer format. And of course, we have the four questions that kickstart, but a lot of the dialogue is kind of this back and forth that has uh, this structure to it. And by the way, this is, of course, more relevant this year than any other year. What if someone doesn't have their children or any youth to ask the Manashtana questions? Ask your spouse. If you are alone, the Talmud says you have to ask yourself. It's very important and very powerful. It may seem infantile, may seem childish, but this is the structure that goes all the way back to Talmudic and Mishnai times, and it is tailored to be able to extract from us the, or extract from the night, the most powerful experience possible. Another aspect of the Haggadah is that it starts with the disgrace and ends with praise. You start with the bad things, and the bad things are both the idolatrous, shameful origins of our people and the subjugation, servitude in Egypt. We start with the negative, and only then, after we spend some time in the suffering and the backstory, so to speak, of the Jewish people, then we get to the redemption and the exodus, and that too is a format that is most powerful to facilitate the transformation of the night. Another interesting idea, again, as a general idea in the Haggadah, is that there is no reference to Moshe, to Moses. Ain't that interesting? If you look at you know the story of the Exodus in the book of Exodus, the primary character in the story is Moshe. He's the one who's shuttling back and forth between Pharaoh and God of the Jewish people, and he's the one who's orchestrating all these plagues. Doesn't doesn't appear in the Haggadah. And the lesson for that is, is that, of course, Moshe, he played a role, but ultimately, and certainly on this night we have to remember, ultimately God was solely in control. And this is also a night that we have to remember. You know, we don't have Moshe in today's generation. If we did, maybe the Jewish people would look very different. But this is the night that we remember on Pesach, even if Moshe is not present, as he isn't in the Haggadah, great things can happen to Jewish people because ultimately we have the Almighty and he can help us, he can aid us, he can propel us to whatever exodus that we need. So we start the night 
And you start the night as soon as you get off from shul, which, of course, this year, I don't know if there's any shuls in the country that are even open. You get off from shul, and right away, everything should be set. Everything should be ready to go. There's no preparation because you got to right away launch into the night. Many have a custom to wear a kittel, which is a white garment. It's a totally white garment, very simple garment. It also doubles as burial shrouds. We wear them only on Yom Kippur with the exception of, of Pesach night. Some people have a custom to wear it. Others don't have that custom to wear it. And there's many reasons given as to why this would be the appropriate garb for the night. Some have suggested, like the Maharal writes, that we know the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, on Yom Kippur, the holiest person on the holiest day, he watches into the holiest spot, the Holy of Holies, wearing exclusively white garments. The Kohen Gadol, of course, the high priest, has very intricate, very beautiful golden garments. On this night, it's a night of purity. It's a night of holiness, of holiness that rivals the highest person, the high priest, on the highest day, on the holiest day in Yom Kippur, in the holiest place, you wear only white. Other ideas that were suggested is that these are burial shrouds. And the Talmud tells us that the best way to get someone's attention, and certainly in a spiritual level, is to remind them about their pending demise. The Yetzirah's fiction, the appeal of sin, is only if someone, consciously or otherwise, is ignoring the fact that their life here is temporary. If that is somehow obscured, then there is the possibility for sin. And therefore, says the Talmud, you want to get someone on the right track? You could employ this. Don't abuse it. But you can employ it to be able to kind of reorient, rejigger someone's perspective and to once again live life with the proper priorities. When you wear burial shrouds, it is going to psychologically make you think about your own demise. And of course... What happens after you pass? Your ability to do mitzvos has ended. That's it. It's over. The only way that you can advance spiritually is with your children. Because your children are like an extension of you. They do a mitzvah. It can help you even though you're dead. And therefore, I heard this interesting idea. This is the night that we impart in our children the foundations of our faith the foundations of our Torah, the foundations of their spiritual world. It's important for you to remember this is vital for you because there's going to come a point in time where you're wearing this not temporarily. You're permanently enshrouded, enveloped in these garments. And who's going to be there? Who's going to be there on your side? Who's going to aid you, your children? Make sure you do a good job. Don't waste a second of this night in imparting your children with what they need to become spiritually developed. So we're dressed, the table's all set, and we start off with the first of the 15 components of the Seder, and that is Kadesh. Kadesh means to make Kiddush. You pour a cup of wine, and you make Kiddush like you would do for any other festival and any other Shabbos. Every holy day is kit started with Kiddush. And this is going to be the first of the four 
cups of wine that are scattered throughout the Haggadah and the Seder. You start off with uh, the beginning of Kaddish, and then you have Urchatz, Karpas, Yachatz. That's the next uh, three components. And then you have Magid at the end of Magid. Magid is the, Magid is the longest part. That's when you tell of the story of the Exodus and all the lessons of the Haggadah. At the end of that, you drink the second cup of wine. And then after the meal is over, you have the third. And then finally at the end of the, of the night, you have the fourth cup of wine. And again, this is a mitzvah to have four cups of wine on the night of Pesach, on the night of the Seder. Why four cups of wine? Why four in general? So they just tell us because when God took us out of Egypt, he described the Exodus at the beginning of Parshas Va'era. Vehod says, I'll take them out. Vehid salti, and I'll save them. Vigra alti, and I will redeem them. Vilakachti, and I'll take them for my own. There's four different words to describe the Exodus, and therefore there's four different cups that we have to memorialize them or to relive them. And by the way, there's a fifth one, Vehevesi, which is a reference to a future redemption, and that is remembered with the cup of Elijah, that ginormous one that uh, we give to Elijah. So what's the question? If you want to relive the four languages, the four words of redemption, why do you have to have four cups of wine? Why don't you have, let's say, four matzahs? Wouldn't that achieve the same aim? So the answer potentially is that there's some progression here. Matzah, you know, you have one matzah, you have two matzahs. The second matzah is not very different than the first. When you have a cup of wine, it can make you a little tipsy. The second cup is going to exponentially compound the influence of the wine. And by the fourth cup, the fourth cup is a very different experience than the first cup. Similarly, with the Exodus and these four levels, I took them out, I saved them, I redeemed them, I took them for my own, there is a progression of more and more intimate closeness with the Almighty, just as the drinking of the wine is non-linear. So you make the Kiddush, and now you drink it, and you drink it while leaning to the left. Why do you drink it while leaning to the left? So again, we said, because that's the way of kings. And even though today that's not the way of kings, I don't know if we even have kings, but that was already in the times of the Talmud. That became a rabbinic law. Why to the left? Why are we always leaning to the left? I mean, by the way, you're supposed to lean to the left when you eat, and certainly when you eat the matzah. So the Talmud says, because otherwise it may go down the wrong pipe. That's an idea. I saw another idea, more like a Hasidic insight, that this is the night of faith. The matzah is called the bread of faith. This is the night of revelation. This is the night that we realize that God's behind everything. There is nothing else that has any independent oversight over our lives, over the world around us, besides for the Almighty. And therefore, my health, my well-being, my family, my income, all that is in the hands of God. And even if sometimes I'm leaning to the left, I don't necessarily put my best foot forward, this is the night I remember that ultimately it's the Almighty who decides everything. And even sometimes if we're a little bit disadvantaged, we could still win if God is on our side. So we make Kiddush and then we wash our hands. Why do we wash our hands? Not to eat. We wash our hands, not to eat the meal at least, for the karpas. And the idea being is that on this night we're kings. And kings 
wash their hands, keep, make sure their hands are always clean. Not just when they eat a big meal, even when they eat a small little appetizer. Moreover, it's a night of tremendous holiness, and it's a night of tremendous prayer. And just as before you pray, you wash your hands, we're about to launch into the meat of the Haggadah, and therefore it's important for us to get ready for that. And then we move on to Karpas. Karpas is an unusual word. It doesn't appear in all of Torah. It only appears, in fact, once in Scripture. And it is a description of the kinds of curtains that adorned Achashverosh's party, his banquet. Chur karpas utchelas. It's describing the various different curtains and sheets that were there to adorn the palace. And Rashi uses this word only once in all of Torah when he describes the garment or the material of the garment of Joseph's tunic. Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. And Jacob makes him this tunic, this garment. The Xones Pasim says, Rashi, what is it made out of? It's made out of karpas, that kind of material. As I just pointed out, that if you look at the story of the Jewish people, the timeline of how they ended up in Egypt, the very first thing that triggered it is this garment. And isn't it interesting that Rashi uses the word karpas to describe this garment and then somehow at the very beginning of the Haggadah, the very beginning of the Seder, we reference this karpas, this very unusual word. And also it's been pointed out what happened with that garment. That garment, the brothers take the garment and they dip it into blood. And we take the karpas and we dip it into salt water. Clearly, that is not a coincidence. In addition, the Talmud does say that the word karpas, very unusual word, is a mixture of two words, samach perech, which means 60, hard labor. 60 groups of 10,000, which is 600,000 Jews, were involved in hard labor. So again, we're at the beginning of the story and we're highlighting some of the bad things. But then I saw an amazing idea. And this, I think, will be um, more interesting to someone who understands Hebrew. But the words, the word karpas, if you take every letter, every, every one of those four letters, you could spell out a, or the, it could be an acronym for a, the following axiom. Klal, Rishon, Pesagur. The first rule is keep your mouth shut. That's what karpas stands for. So the Hasidic masters say like this, Kadesh, which means holiness, Urchatz, which means cleanliness or washed off. If you want to be holy and you want to be cleaned of all your sins, then Karpas, which is the third of the 15 portions of the Seder. If you want to be holy, if you want to be cleansed, the first rule is keep your mouth shut. And then what are the next two portions of the Haggadah? Yachatz, which means to split the matzah in half, but to cut something in half. And Madian, which means to tell over. So after the first rule is keep your mouth shut, split in half everything that you do say, which is the formula that, again, it's a Hasidic idea. You want to become holy? You want to become cleansed? First rule, keep your mouth shut. And the second rule is everything that you do say, split it in half. Even when you do commit yourself to verbalizing something, cut it in half, be as uh, taciturn 
as uh, laconic as possible. So we move on to the yachats. We split the matzah in half. The larger piece is put away for the afikomen. The kids like to – there's a custom, a tradition that kids like to steal steal it and then they negotiate at the end of the Seder for something uh, as a way that if they'll, they'll pay it back to you. They'll give it back. They'll give you back the, the, the afikomen in exchange for a bicycle or whatever it is. And I saw another idea that in Jewish philosophy – the idea of breaking one thing in half and splitting it is similar to what we do by a pact. Remember, like uh, when Abraham and God make a pact, they take the animals, they split them in half. Half to God, half to Abraham. One became two, and thus each holder of each half is connected to the other with their portion. In fact, the word for mating a pact, making a treaty in Hebrew is krisas bris, which means cutting a deal. Like cutting a, cutting a deal or cutting a treaty, meaning, or it's symbolized by taking one, splitting it into two, and each one has half of, of that. We have this matzah. We take it, split it in half. Half is, so to speak, for God. It's to the end, it's for the African Half is for us. It's symbolizing the closeness that we have with the Almighty on this night. Similarly, we know the matzahs that we use traditionally are round matzahs. And like we mentioned earlier, the time or the, the, the way we view time is, is, is this linear circle. On this night, we break out of the cycle. This is the night that we take the round matzah, we crack it in half. This is the time that we could break out of our cycle. We could split in half. We could shatter, so to speak, the ways of the rest of the year, and we could charge ahead, chart a new path for ourselves on this night. And then we begin the Magid. And the Magid, of course, that dominates the majority of the night. It begins with a very unusual proclamation. Halachmani, we lift the matzah, we say, this is the bread of the poor people, this is the bread of the oppressed, that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. And then we say, okay, whoever wants to join, to come join. It's very odd. You know, you invite people to your meal. After the meal is already underway, you are inviting them. So that's one of the questions that people ask. But it's interesting. Out of the whole Haggadah, this is one of two places that the text of the Haggadah is not in Hebrew. It's in fact in Aramaic. Halach ma'anya the way you would say it in in Hebrew, ze lechem oni. Halachma'anya is not Hebrew, it's in Aramaic. Why are we speaking Aramaic? To kickstart our Passover Seder. So one of the answers was, is, you know, you want to invite people, you want to invite people, invite them in language they know. This is the language that people know. Uh, at this time, the Jewish people, or when it was when it was written, that was the lingua franca, that was the language of of the land, and therefore speak to people in the way they know. Don't uh, don't speak to them in in academic lingo when you want to invite them. Okay, that's a good answer. But some of the commentators point out that the Talmud says that there is one language that angels don't understand, and that is Aramaic. In fact, the way the Talmud couches it. If you want the angels to aid you in your prayer, don't pray in Aramaic because they, they don't understand it. So some of the commentators jump on that insight and they say that this is a prayer 
for redemption. We talk about the Exodus. This is the bread of shame or the bread of servitude, the bread of poor people that we ate in Egypt. We were saved. It's time for us to be saved again. Now we're here, next year, in Jerusalem. We want to slip that prayer past the angels. Because the angels hear that, what do these people want? What do these renegade Jews want? They want to go back to Egypt? They're not deserving of it. That is a prayer that we have to do stealthily, because who knows what the angels could say if they intercept it. That's one idea. A second idea is that, yes, angels are not going to aid us in our prayer. But you know what? On this night, on this auspicious night, we're so exalted, we're even higher than the angels. We don't need their help to get our prayers answered. And therefore, the Haggadah begins in Aramaic. The Haggadah ends in Aramaic. The very last piece of the Haggadah is the, is the Chagadya song. Again, it's in Aramaic. We're bookending the Haggadah in Aramaic to say that this is the night that we don't need any of the angels' help. After we finish that, we begin with the Manashtana. And that's going to introduce the themes of the night. And the repeating refrain is Halayla Hazet, this night. And by the way, that's the only reference in the whole Haggadah to the fact that the night that we're actually saying it is the night of the Exodus. Because we could talk about, we could talk about Pesach many times, but this is the only time that we mention it's this night, not any other night. And by the way, this is the time that we have the children asked. If there's no children, then the adults ask. But if there are children, the children ask. And our sages tell us this is the time, this is the most auspicious time to pray for your children. If someone doesn't have children, they're infertile for whatever reason. This is the time to pray. If someone does have children and they want their children to be righteous and meritorious, this is the time to sneak in a prayer during the Manishtana introduction, the opening of the Haggadah. After that, it pivots to a abstract, I would say, of the Exodus. And that is the paragraph of Avadim Hayinu. We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and God saved us. We were slaves to Pharaoh. We were slaves to Egypt. We were enslaved physically. We were enslaved spiritually. And God saved us from there, both spiritual and physical. Exodus, salvation. This is kind of the nutshell of the story. We were slaves and we got out. It's going to be the initial answer to the questions of why this night is different than any other night. And it's going to highlight the fact that God himself took us out of the enslavement of Egypt. We tell the story of the five rabbis, five of the greatest legends of Jewish history. They're spending the whole night talking about the Exodus. Obviously, they knew the story really well. Nevertheless, they spent the whole night telling the story of the Exodus, and it was the morning already. It was time to pray, and they were still talking about the Exodus. And their students had to come and say, okay, it's time time to come pray, because you're, you're reaching the point in the day where it's, been, it's going to become too late to pray if you continue talking about the Exodus any further. So I pointed out that the students arrive in the morning. Where were the students the whole night? Why weren't they participating in the Passover Seder with their rabbis, with their teachers? And the answer is because this is the night that you spend with your family. And therefore, the students were there with their parents, with their fathers. And once it's the morning, once the night's over, 
Now it's time to go back to the rabbis and hear what they have to say. And then it goes to talk about the four different sons. This is a night that it's so critical to convey the messages of Pesach to your children. The Torah crafts the correct message to be tailored for each type of child. And then moves on to the question of when. So we have what, we have to whom, and now it's when. Maybe it's from the beginning of the month, maybe it's during the daytime. No, it's at night, the night of the Exodus, the night when the matzah and the maror are there in front of you. And then it goes to the history of the Jewish people. We have a pedigree of idolaters. Abraham's father was a famous idolater. And look what happened to us today. Look where we are right now. Similar again to the themes of the night in general, we were slaves, we became free. We were at the lowest level, we became to the highest level. We were idolaters, and look what happened. We got Abraham out of Terach. And then it goes to the central component of the Magid, and that is the five verses from Deuteronomy that describe someone bringing Bikurim, bringing the first fruit offering to Jerusalem, and the declaration that they say. This is really interesting. If I were to say, you know what, we're going to have a book dedicated to the Exodus, and we're going to quote verses from Scripture, where do you think those verses are going to come from? So most of us would say, well, if it's a story of the Exodus, go to the book of Exodus that tells the whole story in great detail. Yet if you open the, if you open the Haggadah, you'll notice that there's five verses from Deuteronomy that are part of a declaration, an oral declaration that someone who brings Bikurim to Jerusalem says, and those five verses, each word of those verse is a paragraph of the story. We say, okay, this word, what does that mean? That word, what does that mean? Isn't it interesting? Isn't it intriguing that we have to go all the way to Deuteronomy to find verses on the Exodus? So there's many answers to this question. One of the answers is, well, if you look at the Exodus, there's a lot of content. You want to read, you'll read the whole Exodus, the whole book tonight. You won't have time to eat your matzah. You won't have time. It's a busy enough night as is. You won't get to the important things that you need to get to. And therefore, you find a short synopsis in the declaration of the Bikurim. But moreover, the Bikurim story or the Bikurim mitzvah, our Sadists tell us, is all about appreciation. And the only verses in scripture that talk about the Exodus in the context of appreciation are there. And therefore, it's important for us to contextualize this narrative, the story, the story of the Exodus that we want to tell over. The angle that we want to highlight is the angle of appreciation, make it relevant to us. And then it goes through the plagues and there's a custom to try to reenact them. And some people, you know, they, they, they go to the store and they buy the, the animals, like small little animals, and they just throw them out and throw fire to people. The way again, one of the themes of the night is let's try to keep people's attention. So we ask them questions, we give them treats, get, you know, make sure the kids are particip- participating in this night's important. So this is a great way to do it, you know, to try to relive the the blood. Oh my gosh, there's blood everywhere. Or boils. You're itching yourself. Oh my gosh. Try and talk to uh, Moshe while you're itching every part of your body. Or again, that's a way to try to make the night a little bit more powerful. And 
you know, you could do charades. Some people do charades. Uh, some people do the, the game. I, I don't know what the name is called, but basically you have a headband and on the headband is one of the words that relate to Passover, to Pesach, to the Exodus, to Egypt, to the Jewish people. And the person has to guess who they are. Again, there's a way, various tactics that we could use, certainly with children, to, to try to make it a little bit more alive, a little bit more engaging. After the story of the Exodus is told, we have a portion of the halal, a portion of the prayers uh, that talk about thanking God. And then it's time for the food. I remember every year, you were so hungry by the time the matzah came around. That first bite of matzah was just so delicious and infusing you with both spiritual and physical life. So you wash your hands. This time you wash your hands for bread. You make two blessings on the matzah. One, the regular hamotzi blessing. One, the special blessing to fulfill the mitzvah of eating matzah. And you eat your matzah again while leaning to your left. The maharil points out something very fascinating. If you count the amount of blessings that precede the eating of the matzah in the Haggadah, in the, in the, in the Seder, there's seven blessings that precede the eating of the matzah. And we know that by Jewish weddings... There's always seven blessings before the marriage, so to speak, is consummated. The Jewish people are being wedded to God at the Exodus. Every Pesach Seder, we once again renew our vows and get, so to speak, married, wedded to God again. And therefore, the seven distinct blessings that precede the eating of the matzah, which, so to speak, really symbolizes, which personifies this union of God and his people. Some people have a custom, by the way, to kiss the matzah. You know, we kiss the mezuzah. We kiss mitzvahs. You, you wear tefillin, you take a tefillin off. You kiss your tefillin. We, we kiss Torah scrolls. Some people have a custom to kiss the matzah. I read this year. I thought it was very funny. I've never seen anything like this before. I read this year. One of the Hasidic masters, he said that if he wasn't embarrassed he would take his matzah to shul, and just as you shake the lul of an esrog, he was going to shake the matzah because he was so excited with the matzah, but he's too embarrassed to do it. So I was thinking maybe this year, where there's no one in shul, I went to the, uh, in the quarantine, maybe people are actually shaking their matzah like a lulav. Who knows? After we finish the mitzvah matzah, we go to the maror. The maror, of course, reminds us of the bitter parts of the experience. And that we do, of course, without leaning. And then we have the Korech. Korech is the mixture. Korech is the Hillberger. We have the matzah with the maror. In the times of the temple, we also have the meat in there. It's like a great sandwich. And we eat that as a remembrance for the temple. And in the Haggadah, it says that this is what Hill would do in the times the temple was extant. And this time, we do lean. So matzah we lean, maror we don't lean, bitter herbs we don't lean, and korach, which is the mixture of the two, we do lean. And the question is obvious. Wait a minute. If you don't lean for the bitter parts during the sandwich, you have the bitter parts there as well. So why are we leaning? And here's the answer. Pesach, the matzah, is the lesson that God is in charge. It is the bread of faith. When you have the bread of faith, 
Even the marrow you realize is from God. Even the bitter pills to swallow you realize they come from God. And even that you could celebrate. If you have just suffering alone without faith, you can't lean. That is some experience that you have to just absorb. You have to tolerate. You can't really celebrate. However, if you marry the suffering, so to speak, with the faith, then you can even lean because you realize it is from God. After that's done, Shulchan Orich, everyone's favorite part. Now it's time for the festive meal. Now it's interesting, the commentaries point out that normally, you know, the festive meal, what does that have to do with the the, the part of the Haggadah? Like the, the whole thing is all spiritual. That's all unique to Passover. And then you have the celebratory meal, which shouldn't necessarily be part of this experience. And the answer is, is that even the meal that you would have any other night, and certainly you would have at every other festival, on Passover, it is elevated, and therefore it's part of these 15 junctures. After that, the dessert is the afikomen, which is a, uh, a memorial of the Pesach offering. Please God, the temple's rebuilt. We bring a Pesach offering, and everyone has a small little bit of meat that we eat. That's the last thing that we eat at the Pesach, uh, the Pesach sacrifice, that is our dessert and that accompanies us. That That's kind of the feeling that lingers with us throughout the night. After that's done, we make the blessing, the after meal grace. We finish the halal. We finish the verses that talk about the singing and the praising of God. And finally, the Haggadah ends with Nirza, where God is accepting, so to speak, our observance of the night and we make our pitch, okay, next year in Jerusalem, next year let's do this for real. So that is the structure, and those are some of the insights behind the Haggadah. And again, this is a powerful day. It's a day of great and grand transformations. It's a day that we don't want to lose. We don't want to miss out. It's too powerful. Too powerful for us to ignore. Too powerful for us to miss out on it. This is the night that even though it's nighttime, there's a bright light. This is the night that God and the angels are participating. They're there with us. This is the night we can change everything. However, it won't happen on its own. To the degree that we invest in Pesach, to the degree that we invest in the Seder, that's what we will pull out of it. And therefore, it's time of prayer. It's time of introspection. It's time of preparation. If you are not prepared for the Haggadah, then you're going to play catch-up the whole night. Prepare the Haggadah, get in the zone, get ready. Everyone's under quarantine, you have plenty of time, there's no excuses this year. Everyone's under quarantine, plenty of time, get ready for it, make sure that the festive banquet is ready ahead of time, make sure you know all the junctures and all the movements of the uh, uh, of the of the night and of the Haggadah, get ready for it and maximize it. This is the night that we no longer Take those small steps. Small steps before Pesach. Small steps after Pesach. Pesach, great, giant, transformational, tectonic leaps for mankind. My email address is rabbiwobajima.com. Happy to hear everyone's emails, even though I may not respond to it till after Pesach. We'll see about that. But it was a great and total pleasure to study this wonderful night with y'all today.